I had contemplated just calling this message, you know, the sister struggle part two, because we're, we're still seeing uh, this struggle between Rachel and Leah. And, um, but as Mark and I sat and chatted a little bit about the message this week, he was like, what about the baby race? And I'm like, I really like that. So that's where we came up to the title this morning, the baby race. <coughs> and I just want us to think about um, a race that took place uh, years ago between the United States and the Soviet Union. It was the space race, wasn't it? It uh, began with the Cold War, but quickly focused on space explor exploration. The Soviet Union struck first by launching Sputnik, the world's first artificial satellite, and the first man-made object to be placed into the Earth's orbit. Now it's just packed up there, isn't it? Right? <laughs> it's just all kinds of debris <laughs> orbiting our Earth. On October 4th, 1957 is when Sputnik went up. In 1958, just a year later, the United States launched its own satellite, Explorer 1. In 1959, the Soviets launched the space probe Luna 2 and hit, that hit the moon. In April of 1961, had the Soviet Union taking another giant leap in space travel by sending Yuri Gagarin into orbit around the Earth. He was the first person to accomplish that task. Alan Shepard was the first American in space, though he did not orbit the Earth. And that happened in May of of 1961 and then in february of 1962 john glenn became the first american to orbit the earth then the lunar landing program began at the end of 1962 but did not see success until july 20th of 1969 when neil armstrong was the first person to walk on the moon and so by the landing on the moon the united states in effect quote unquote won the space race yeah right <laughs> well, we're excited about that we're Americans. Soviets, probably not so excited about that. But as I think about this concept of, you know, racing and, you know, competition and things like that, this is not really a competition in our household, but it just comes up from time to time, and it's just interesting to think about. But um, our middle son is only an uncle once. Um, our oldest son is an uncle twice, because our middle son has two children. And, but our youngest son is an uncle three times. He's not even married yet. So... But he's an uncle three times, and so um, our middle son especially likes to bring that out, that he's got all this um, uh, uncle ability, right, like to take care of uh, his nieces. And so, um, you know, it's interesting that, you know, like, you should change her diaper, right? And <laughs> your youngest niece diaper because you have all this uncle experience, right? And he's never had any kids of his own. So, but it's funny how that it's not, like I said, not really a competition, but it's just funny to think about. So in my own family with my brother and sister, um, I'm just, a, I'm an uncle twice, so I have the least experience as an uncle. My brother is an uncle three times, but my sister is an aunt five times. I'm like, so I need to get her up here from Alabama, right, uh, to come up here and help out with my grandkids and, and everything. So she has all this aunt experience. So as you think about that, are, is there a, some healthy competition in your family? I just want you to think about that this morning. Is there some kind of healthy competition that you have with a family member or family members? Who is, quote, unquote, winning that race, right? Just be thinking about that today. It's just fun, something fun for us to do uh, to kind of connect us to what we're going to be talking about. How about at work or maybe in your friend group? Is there some healthy competition going on there uh, as well? Well, last week we saw Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah, had two sons. Rachel named the second son Naphtali, which meant struggle. Rachel then claimed victory in the struggle with her sister Leah. And what we'll see today is that the baby race has not stopped, 
In fact, it seems to be heating up. Leah follows her sister's example about without consulting God. Human schemes seem to play, be playing a larger role in the narrative than God. And perhaps Rachel, Leah, and Jacob should, be, should have been involving God instead of relying on themselves and their maidservants. And we're going to learn today our big idea that involving God in our plans is important. This is just so important. We just don't see that happening in this passage of Scripture. It's just a few short verses. Um, it's a Genesis chapter 30, verses 9 to 13. Um, but as we uh, think about that big idea today, of an, it's important to involve God in our plans. Let's just turn to him uh, for this time of the message. So Lord, we come to you and we seek your, um, your wisdom today as we open up your word. Lord, we want to hear from you. We want your plans to be accomplished. And I pray, Lord God, that uh, we would set aside our plans and seek your face. That you would guide and direct us by your spirit to know exactly what you want us to do as a body of believers, as family units, as individuals. And so, Lord, we lift it up to you today. And pray, Lord God, that you would just speak through your servant. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have two short points today. First, first one is Leah's plight, and it's just the first half of verse 9. And then the rest, the second half of verse 9 through 13, is Leah's plan. And so let's look at uh, the first part of verse 9 and see Leah's plight here. This is what it says. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children. There we go. That's her plight. Do you get it? Do you see it there? Yeah, good. Awesome. So her plight is the fact that after she had four children, God closed her womb. She wasn't able to have any more children at this point. Um, and we'll see eventually she has more. Perhaps she started to understand a little bit about how Rachel felt at not being able to conceive children, but my guess is probably not. Like, she's like, no. <clears throat> and I think the reason why we don't see any compassion towards her sister at this point is because of what her plan is going to be in just a minute. Instead of being content with four sons at this point, Leah continues the baby race by following her sister Rachel's example. She wanted to make sure she had a commanding lead in this quote-unquote contest, right? I have four, you have two adopted ones. I have four natural sons, you have two adopted sons. Uh, but that's not good enough. I'm going to make it even harder for you. And so we see then Leah's plan. Look at the second half of verse 9 through verse 13. This is what God's word says. She took her maidservant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. This is his fourth wife, fourth wife by the way. Leah's servant Zilpah uh, bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. And so we see Leah's plan here. She gives Zilpah to her husband as a fourth wife. Leah should have involved God in her plan instead of trying to do what her sister had done. Leah took her maidservant Zilpah and gave her to her Jacob as his fourth wife. And what I see from this passage then is just a couple of principles that I want us to not miss today. The first one is this. Just because something is socially acceptable does not make it wise or right. This is important. This was a, a cultural thing. I mentioned it last week that in the ancient Near East, it was not uncommon for a woman struggling with infertility uh, to offer her maidservant to her husband so that the children born to the maidservant would be considered the children of the husband and wife. 
They would adopt these children. They would become their own children. So that was socially acceptable. That was a practice that was done in the, in the ancient Near East. Interestingly enough, Jacob is silent when Rachel and now Leah offer their maidservants to him as wives. He doesn't object to it. He certainly could have refused to give in to the socially acceptable practice and, and trusted God for his timing and plan. He could have done that. He could have been the, the spiritual leader in his household at this point and said, no, we're not going to follow uh, what's going on in the culture of the day. We're not going to do that. We're going to trust God. He could have led very powerfully that way. Instead, he doesn't. He doesn't do that. He doesn't object. He just uh, accepts what his wives say to him, and he marries these two maidservants. So how, is, how about us? Is there something that we're participating in or believing as followers of Jesus Christ because they are socially acceptable in our culture? I, I want you to know today, you should not be surprised how many Christians accept things that God's words say are wrong just because our court system in our country has ruled that it's acceptable and or right. You would be surprised that there are followers of Jesus Christ or who claim the name of Christ out there that say that abortion's okay. In certain situations, they'll, they'll preface it by saying that. There are certain people out there who claim the name of Christ that say that same-sex marriage is okay because our court system has said that it's okay. There are believers out there that, that say um, it's okay to smoke marijuana because the court system in some states has said it's legal and it's okay to do it. And I'm here to tell you today that we need to look at the standard of God's word, not what our culture tells us, not what, we, not what people say are socially acceptable. And I'm just giving you a couple of examples, but there's so many more. Are there things we have embraced as followers of Christ because other people, including Christians, are doing them? I want you to think about some of these. It's the abuse of alcohol. God's word doesn't say uh, abstinence from alcohol. He says abstinence from the abuse of alcohol. Do not become drunk. And yet we see other believers that are doing just that. They're becoming drunk. They go out with the purpose of doing that. And like, we can't keep doing those kind of things. Again, going, cycling back to this use of marijuana, either illegally or with a doctor's card, right? We say, oh, I just pay the $75, and I go see the doctor online or whatever, and he gives me my card, and now it's okay for me, right? And other Christians are doing it. It's all right. Having sex before marriage, living together before marriage, gossip, foul language and coarse joking. We're like, hey, other people are doing that. I see other believers doing the same thing. Maybe it's looking at pornography or, or other images that we shouldn't be looking at. And we're like, well, other people I know that go to church do those kind of things, and it's just okay. It's not. It's not okay. We can refuse to participate in, believe, and embrace what we know God says is wrong. We can refuse to give in to the things that are socially acceptable in our culture today. We can choose instead to pursue holiness, righteousness, and purity. We can choose to wait on God's timing and his plan for us. And so maybe you're ready to take this first next step today. It's on the back of your communication card and in your notes, and that's to refuse to give in to what is socially acceptable and pursue holiness, righteousness, and purity instead. That's who we need to be. That's the kind of people of God that we need to be. We need to refuse to give in, and we need to seek holiness <clears throat> and righteousness and purity. And we need to be involving God in our plans because it's so important that we do that. A lot of times we justify all these things because we don't believe that God's capable of doing something on our behalf, right? It really tells, it's very telling of what we truly believe about God. Why we justify doing these other things. And so this is important 
to involve God in our plans because other people are watching what we are doing and determining what they should do as a result. That's the second principle that I want us to see here today is our actions or our example may lead others astray. And this has happened. And this is what happened with Rachel and Leah. Leah saw what Rachel did in reaction to her infertility. So when Leah becomes barren or infertile at this point, uh, she did the same thing when faced with not being able to have children. She followed her sister's example. When we participate in, believe in, and embrace what our culture says is socially acceptable, we run the risk of leading other people astray. They're thinking, oh, well, if Christians do that, then it's okay for me to do it. I don't need to become a Christian. I don't need to follow Christ. They're doing the same things I'm doing. It's okay. I'm going to go to heaven too, by the way, just to let you know. I don't have to believe in Jesus to do that. I'm okay. I'm all right. And it's a lie. This happens with social issues, but it can also happen with spiritual issues. It happens all the time when someone takes just one verse from the Bible and uses it out of context to justify what they believe. Others uh, try to make God in their own image so they can continue to do what they want without feeling guilty. Still others try to reinterpret Scripture to have it say something that it does not say so they can feel better about themselves or believe that God is accepting of their belief and or actions. Judy was just reminding me this week of um, a situation um, that came up at, you know, at the public school where um, this one student uh, that we had, it was years ago, had uh, contact with uh, was being told by a group on campus that well, same-sex was that what it was? Yeah, same-sex um, marriage was okay, and they had all these scripture references that they were giving to these other students to prove that God's Word said that it was okay. Now, fortunately, this student went home and opened her Bible and began to read those verses from the Bible and found out that the verses that were printed out for them, they had changed some of the words. We have to be so careful, right? We can't just take what other people say and go, oh, I guess that's the, the word of God. No, we have to study for ourselves. We have to dig into God's word. Make sure that they're not doing those kind of things to try and dupe us, to try and convince us that God says that those things are okay. So maybe the second next step is for you today, and that's to evaluate my actions to make sure they are in alignment with God's word so that I'm not leading anyone astray. Boy, that's so important. We have children that are looking up to us. We have non-believers, you know, people that aren't followers of Christ at our workplace that are looking up to us. They're waiting to see what we're going to do. When I worked in the secular business world in Florida, I um, worked for a direct mail marketing company, and uh, there was a baby shower that Judy and I went to from one of the employees that I worked with. And we went to, it was just in like a, a, a bar or a grill and bar or something like that. And so when we walked in, they were waiting to see what we ordered to drink. The, the other employees were just sitting there waiting to see what we were, and we ordered Sprite, by the way. Um, <laughs> we didn't order any alcohol. But um, people were watching us all the time. They want to know is this person gen, a genuine follower of Christ? Uh, are what they're saying matching what they're doing? Do they really believe what they say they believe? I mean, people are watching us all the time. And so we need to be aware of that, and we need to make sure that we're not leading people astray. Rachel should have, been, should have evaluated her actions to see what kind of impact they would have 
in her community. Rachel, Leah, and Jacob should have refused to embrace what was socially acceptable in their culture and trusted God to fulfill his plan for them. They needed to involve God in uh, their plans, and we need to involve God in our plans. It's so important. We have to do that. Instead, Leah followed Rachel's example and gave Zilpah to Jacob, which resulted in two additional sons for Leah. And we see that in this passage of Scripture today. First one is Gad. Zilpah's first son uh, had Leah feeling fortunate, which is why she exclaimed, what good fortune. And then that's how he got his name. So you have to be careful what you say, right? After your children are born, that might become their name, right? No. Boy, you guys are a tough crowd today. Leah named him Gad, which can mean good fortune or a troop. Now, Walk, he says, does, does she attribute the birth to fortune or luck and not God? She's not represented as in prayer or praise, unlike the case of her own children. If you remember uh, the first four children, there was recognition that God was in control. Golden Gate says elsewhere in the Middle East, Gad is a name of a deity who brings good luck. But in the First Testament, it's simply a term for luck, except in Isaiah 65, 11. So it's fascinating that Leah names her first four sons in a way that recognizes that the Lord saw her, heard her, and blessed her. With Gad, it seems to be different. It's almost as though she's embracing the pagan beliefs of the nations around her. Now, it's not definite that this is what's it's taking place here because Scripture or the text doesn't really tell us that. But Leah now has five sons, but, that's, uh, but that doesn't stop here. It goes on. Asher, Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Leah's really happy at this point to have six sons. In fact, she believes that the women in the community will call her happy. So that's what she names her son, Asher, which means women will call me happy. Poor guy. <laughs> I don't know how you shorten Asher so it just means happy, right? Maybe it's Ash. Ash, happy, I don't know. Walke says, essentially, Leah is saying, I am to be envied. I got six children. Look at me. I'm blessed. I'm happy. Women are going to call me happy. <clears throat> Matthews, in his commentary, says that Leah refers to the women or daughters indicates the community setting in which the prestige of children accrued for a woman. The, woman, the women of Bethlehem present just such a benediction for Naomi at the birth of Obed by Ruth. And this is what it says in Ruth chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew uh, your life and sustain you in your old age. Uh, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than uh, seven sons has given him birth. So like they're just, they're so happy. The women of Bethlehem are so happy for Naomi because she came home broken, didn't she? She came home broken that her husband and her two sons had died, and she didn't have any grandchildren. And God restored that, brought that kinsman redeemer uh, through Ruth. Leah's naming of Asher brings to mind Mary's song of praise. We call it the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. But listen to Luke chapter 1, verse 48, the second half. This is what Mary says, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. The major difference between the two is that Leah speaks of the women, um, uh, all the women or the daughters, while Mary speaks of all generations. Hamilton brings that out in his commentary. Leah is talking about the women who are in her immediate community, 
while Mary is talking about women throughout history. So as, you know, as we kind of wrap this up today, just a couple of things I want you to, to review and think about. Have you involved God in your plans? Did you need, uh, do you need to refuse to give in to what is socially acceptable and pursue holiness, righteousness, and purity today? And are there some actions that you need to evaluate to make sure they're in alignment with God's word so that you do not lead other people astray? Those are important things that we need to wrestle with in our own hearts and minds. We need to come to a conclusion of what we're going to do there. As a body of believers here at Idaville Church, there are spiritual issues that we need to evaluate as a body to ensure that they align with God's word so we're not leading others astray. That's so important. We need to involve God in our plans, right? So that we are doing his plan. In the late 80s and early 90s, there, are several, there were several hundred studies about happiness published each year. By 2014, uh, there were over 10,000 per year. It was an exciting shift for psychology, one that the public immediately responded to. Major media outlets clamored to cover the new research. Soon, entrepreneurs began monetizing it, founding startups, and programming apps to help ordinary people implement the field's findings. They were followed by a deluge of celebrities, personal coaches, and motivational speakers, all eager to share the gospel of happiness. According to Psychology Today in 2000, the number of books published about happiness was a modest 50. In 2008, just eight years later, that number had skyrocketed to 4,000. Of course, people have always been interested in the pursuit of happiness, but all that attention has made an impact. Since the mid-2000s, the interest in happiness has measured as measured by Google searches, has tripled. The shortcut to anything you want in your life, writes author Rhonda Byrne in her best-selling 2006 book, The Secret, is to be and feel happy now. That's not easy to do, though, is it? And yet, there's a major problem with the happiness frenzy. It has failed to deliver on its promise. Though the happiness industry continues to grow, as a society, we're more miserable than ever. Indeed, social scientists have uncovered a sad irony. Chasing happiness actually makes people unhappy. Wow. <laughs> but why is that? I believe it's because we're not involving God in our plans, right? When we do that, when we pursue God and seek Him for His plans for our lives, I think we're going to find happiness, true joy. But when we're trying to chase it all these other ways, when we're trying to do it through what's socially acceptable, it's just going to fall short. It's going to make us unhappy. And so we need to pursue God. We need to involve Him in our plans instead of trying to do it on our own. And so I hope that you're encouraged and, and strengthened today through God's Word. hope that you're challenged as well to maybe make some changes that He's calling you to make. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you as I just close in prayer. Uh, and then... I, and then do what he's calling you to do. Be obedient to what he's asking you to do. Lord, we just come to you and are so grateful for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that when we involve you in our plans, that we can experience true joy and happiness. I pray that we would do that today. I pray that we wouldn't give in to what is socially acceptable or into, give in to human schemes, Lord God, in order to bring happiness we find our, our identity and our contentment in you and you alone. 
And so, Lord, we just ask this in your precious son's name. Amen.